Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Susan Wong. And I'm Jesse Chesesky Kay. Susan and I are two statisticians in academia, and we want to bring statistics closer to you. We'll touch on topics in big data, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the list may grow. In this episode, we talk about statistical anxiety in college. And then we talk about a new crusade against statistical significance. Let's get started. In previous episodes, Susan and I have mentioned that um, sometimes when we meet new people and um, they find out that we're statisticians, you know, for example, when you sit down in your seat in, um, on an airplane and they ask, oh, what do you do? And you say you're a statistician. Often the person's response is something about how much they hated statistics in college or how they got some low grade in the class that they took. Thankfully, I feel this has gotten better, at least like with the younger generation. But then maybe it's because now I'm teaching the very class that I used to hear people complaining about. So maybe my selective hearing has tuned out all of that negativity. That could be the case. Who knows? But um, at least historically, there seems to be a bit of anxiety when it comes to statistics in college. And in a recent article published in one of the American Psychological Association journals, looks into these anxieties in a bit more detail. And they use some ideas from network science in the analysis as well. Uh, So in this particular study, are they looking at a general college population? Uh, Well, so it turns out in this study, um, the authors are uh, Sue McCartney and uh, Vitevich, focused, um, they were focusing specifically on psychology students. And um, they said that, you know, that just the vast majority, they said almost 77% um, noted in the paper um, of psychology programs require at least one statistics course. And a a different study found that 80% of psychology students um, experienced some form of statistical anxiety. So they were focusing on this particular subgroup that seems to, one, be required to take a stat course and to um, have a lot of anxiety with it. Um, they, they define statistics anxiety as, and I'm going to quote them, feelings of anxiety encountered when taking a statistics course or doing statistical analyses. Wow, that's a, that's a term they define just to sort of explain this very specific phobia almost. Yeah. <laughs> But obviously, nobody wants to experience anxiety. Um, what are some reasons why they focus on this particular problem? Well, they say that so with the statistics anxiety that it can lead to just delayed enrollment in a statistics course, which you know eventually it sounds like the students would take it. But then with anxiety, with statistics anxiety, it can lead to poor performance when they actually do take the class. Um, there are some other things that they mention as well, um, but um, those seem to be kind of the two major points. Um, so in this work, they use something called the Statistical Anxiety Rating Scale, or STARS, which apparently is a popular tool for assessing statistics anxiety. <laughs> That's such a fancy acronym. I've never heard of STARS before. Yeah, I know. I, I hadn't either. And I, I just, I didn't realize there was a whole rating scale purely for measuring statistical anxiety. But well, I, this, um, the original STARS questionnaire actually goes back to the 80s. And um, they developed the questionnaire um, 
gathered some data on it, and then they found six general categories um, using a principal component analysis of the results. And uh, these six categories are supposed to, you know, kind of describe the six main areas uh, or types of anxiety that students face. And so the six areas are the worth of statistics, interpretation anxiety, test and class anxiety, computational self-concept, fear of asking for help, and this is a big one, fear of statistics teachers. Oh no. Yeah, <laughs> got our own category. And so the, the STARS questionnaire has 51 statements where participants were asked to rate how much anxiety they would experience on a scale from one, which indicates no anxiety, to five, which indicates a great deal of anxiety. And so just a couple examples for that would be, um, so a, a statement might be waking up in the morning on the day of a statistics test. So rate how much anxiety you, you think you would experience or feel. Um, another example would be interpreting the meaning of a probability value once I have found it. And then they have another kind of collection or, or types of statements where they're asked to rate their level of ag agreement with the statement. So one would suggest strong disagreement with the statement and five would suggest a strong agreement with the statement. So two examples for that um, would be something like statistics teachers talk so fast you cannot logically follow them. So do you agree or disagree on, on the scale? Um, mm -hmm. Another example, I, I feel statistics is a waste. Agree or disagree? These are such strong statements and I'm a little bit insulted that they don't just like do this for every single discipline, right? Like what's special about statistics? I wake up in the morning on the day of any exam and I would feel anxious. So for a proper analysis, it's like they don't really have a control group, right? Sorry, yeah. I'm just I'm just looking to defend myself right now. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. They are, and if you look at the the full list, there are some pretty strong statements. Yeah, they, they definitely are not neutral. There might be these other these sorts of scales or um, questionnaires for other disciplines. I, I have to admit, I did not check to see if there's something like I don't know, like a physics one, which that maybe there's a physics one or calculus one, but um, but yeah. It's you, you might design the, the questionnaire a little bit differently. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So anyway, so for this study, they considered 228 sophomore student subjects. Um, of the 228, 54 were male, 155 were female, and 19 chose not to identify their gender. And they were all taking an introductory psychological statistics course. Um, all the students are at the same large public university in the Midwest of the United States. And um, the authors also note that the, um, this is a convenient sample. And so I found it interesting. I, I can't say I ever saw a paper where they specifically said it was a convenient sample. Yeah, if they're calling it a convenient sample, it would sound like they were asking for volunteers. So, so maybe then we can take the results with a grain of salt. Yeah, it's, I mean, convenient sample, I, I would, it seems like it was just volunteers, and um, so it's not a random sample. They, the authors do note throughout that, um, that they're just considering this a kind of a first analysis, it's more exploratory in nature, so I think they're just trying to get a, um, just a, a collection of, of students willing to participate, but yeah, we might hope in the future for an actual random sample. Um, so, okay, so the subjects took, so of the, the 228 um, subjects, they each took the STARS during the first two weeks of the semester. And then they, using the results, they built a network where the 51 STARS statements are the nodes of the network. 
Okay, so um, for those unfamiliar with networks, you just um, just try to picture 51 points that are um, where each point is representing one of the 51 statements. And then the researchers are going to, are going to try to make connections or, or links between these different nodes. And how they define a connection in this paper is based on the correlations between the student responses of each question. So if the estimated correlation in the responses of um, any two questions, so that's um, between any two nodes, is greater than 0.3 or less than negative 0.3, they end up connecting the two nodes. So visually you would see a bar or a segment drawn between these two nodes. And so then they consider all the pairwise correlations in order to complete the network. So ultimately the final network should look like a web of lines connecting different nodes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and so then um, in this case, they actually consider um, constructing two different networks. Um, one of the networks is for a group that they describe as high statistical anxiety students, and one for the low statistical anxiety students. So high versus low was determined just based on the overall um, STARS score. And, um, and so then in order to, to group them, they just took the, the median values. So the, um, the upper 50 50%, um, those were the high anxiety and the lower 50% were the um, low anxiety students. So were there any noteworthy differences between the two anxiety groups? Um, not that they mentioned in terms of um, population characteristics, or I guess sample characteristics. Um, they checked for gender differences between the groups, but, um, but that was not significant. It wasn't like, you know, all the males were in one or the other. It was, it was pretty um, nicely split. And they did check for, um, they did some sort of test to check for any significant statistical significance, um, but there were none. But the final networks themselves are actually quite interesting. So in both networks, the, um, that's the nodes, that's the, you know, the 51 statements corresponding, um, sorry, the, the nodes um, being the 51 statements, let me just clarify that again. Um, so they found that the, um, so each of the 51 statements, they end up corresponding to the six stars parameters or categories that we discussed previously. And um, in the networks, you can actually see the sort of groupings of those, um, those six categories. Um, so the questions corresponding to one of the six categories are quite interconnected or, or highly um, correlated with each other. Um, but the overall structure between the two networks is quite different. So um, in fact, actually the, the high anxiety network has all the nodes connected. So you just, you have one connected network but the low anxiety network had two separate components. So almost like two separate networks. Um, the, the two components corresponded to two, um, two different groups of the six stars factors. So, um, so this is for the low anxiety group, which had two different kind of components overall to, of their networks. One of the components was mapped to the, um, the worth of statistics, computation self-concept, and fear of statistics, oh, fe sorry, fear of statistics teachers. So that was one of them. And then the other part of the network had the interpretation anxiety, test and class anxiety, and fear of asking for help. And so it was kind of interesting that it actually split based on, on those components. So just to rephrase that, it seems like in the high anxiety network, people were just anxious about everything, right? That probably explains why everything was so well connected. Whereas in the low anxiety group, there were still different kinds of fears and sort of there, these two groups present the two pr predominant sorts of fears that people would have collectively. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. 
That's interesting. I would have thought that maybe fear of statistics teachers and fear for asking for help would be connected. These are very similar things. Yeah, I agree. I, I was surprised by that too. And so I, I was trying to decide, I, I was trying to rationalize how that could make sense. And I, so I thought, you know, maybe one is related to some just general preconceived notion of statisticians while the other is more related to a fear of, you know, looking stupid or looking like you, you know, don't understand something. So yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what's going on there though. Interesting. Now in a previous episode, I think we talked a little bit about these centrality measures that might be helpful for summarizing graphs. So do we actually have some data on what the standard centrality measures tell us about these networks? Uh, yes, indeed we do. Um, yeah, so we discussed the um, several of the centrality measures back in episode seven. And the idea with the centrality measures is um, the, the goal at least is to try to assess the importance of the individual nodes. And so in this case, trying to assess the importance of the individual um, statements of, um, of the 51. And so one example of, of one of the centrality measures is the closeness centrality. And that um, considers the distance from one node to all the other nodes in the network. And so a node that is close to all the other nodes would be considered important. And so they, they looked at um, some other centrality measures, but if we just focus on this closeness centrality, they, um, they looked at the five most important nodes in the high anxiety network based on measures of centrality, uh, based on the measure of centrality. So I'm only gonna mention two um, specifically because um, two of these five were in common with the low anxiety network. Um, and these two statements were, I don't have enough brains to get through statistics and that's from the computation self-concept category. And the other was, I don't see why I have to clutter up my head with statistics. It has no significance to my life work. And so that's related to the, the worth of statistics. And so, it's, um, so those two were also present, as I said, in the low anxiety network that, um, of the top five. And what's kind of interesting though, for the low anxiety network, four of the top five were related to the worth of statistics. You know, Jesse, I've been biting my tongue to avoid groaning when you say those statements. <laughs> it just sounds so insulting. I wish they, like, this is how we tell our students not to write surveys, right? You're like goading negativity when you phrase things in this way. Clutter up my head with statistics. That's... It has no significance to my life work. I can think of so many other ways of getting at that point without using such strong words. <laughs> so Susan, maybe you and I should develop a new one and like and actually <laughs> test it out and, and see if, uh, I don't know. I think for the sake of pride, we might consider doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about in a future episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it seems at least based on the centrality parameter that the dominant stars feature for those with low anxiety is this worth of statistics. I guess that can make sense because if you don't think statistics is ultimately worthwhile, then you don't feel too anxious about taking the course. Do they know any ways that statistics instructors can help to reduce or mitigate student anxiety? Yeah, they, um, they did actually have a bit about you know, what, what can be done to help with this. Um, they brought up the two statements in the top five for both from the low and high anxiety network, so the not enough brains and having no significance to life work. Um, and the suggestion is to try to ad just address these misconceptions. I, I like that they call them misconceptions um, because they could be relevant for many of the students in the class. 
And, um, and also for the high anxiety students trying to dispel the notion that statistics and structure, instructors are um, abstract and inhuman, those words appear in some of the other um, questionnaire statements, would be helpful. So, um, so Susan, do you have any ideas how to come across as more human? I think we are so human as it stands. After all, we are teaching this science that helps people better understand the real world phenomena around them. What could be more human than that? <laughs> Great point. That is true. Uh, so, so what do you think about the differences in anxiety between statistics and then data science? Uh, do you think students will have as much anxiety with data science courses as with just a, a straight or, or pure statistics course? So I worry that what we have is more of a PR problem than a serious crisis. Statistics has had such a bad reputation for being a weapon that can distort the truth. Now, data science, on the other hand, is this new knight in shining armor that's been welcomed around the world. So just purely based on that, I think students will have less anxiety with data science courses. Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I agree. I, I feel like there's a lot of um, excitement, I mean, there is a lot of excitement around data science, uh, and th that's that's quite quite clear. And, and maybe part of it too is that um, it, the term data science, and often it seems how people understand it, it it automatically seems like it has some connection to um, to the real world or applications. And since one of the problems, at least with um, ba based on the stars questionnaire, is that um, the, the students don't feel like it's it's worthwhile or it's um, they're ever going to use it or that they need it. And so right away, data science, though, it, it seems like something they would use or need. So that might, I don't know, help to reduce the anxiety. I'm, I may be overthinking that that part of it, but no, yeah. I think I think you're right. I think um, at least at present, we are getting we're, we're being we're benefiting from the good feelings that everybody has about data science. And I hope that trend continues. Yes, me too. So p-values have been pretty regularly under attack, um, especially for, let's say, the past five years. Yeah, it's a little unnerving as an educator because I feel like no matter what introductory statistics textbook we use, um, or in your case, you probably don't use a textbook, but in any case, p-values are going to occupy just a really significant chunk of the material, um, at least traditionally. So we kind of have to explain to our students why we still have to learn about p-values. Yeah, so we have an online textbook we use, and there's still a lot, yep, yep, still a lot about p-values, yep. Um, so, and as we know, a p-value is, it's really the typical tool by which scientific researchers determine whether a result is statistically significant. Um, it measures how much the observed data, say from, from some experiment, aligns with a null hypothesis. And if we're talking about experiments where we're comparing, just for example, let's say the outcome of patients who took a drug to patients who took a placebo, the null hypothesis assumes the outcomes are not different. And then a really low p-value would suggest that the observed difference in outcome from the sample of patients is large enough to suggest that the drug might actually be effective. So a quick history of how p-values came to be the enemy. In my memory, one of the big headlines that happened in the beginning, um, and by beginning I mean back in 2015, is that this journal called Basic and Applied Social Psychology 
uh, we're back to psychology again, aren't we? They announced that they would no longer publish articles that relied on p-values. And specifically, if authors did try to use p-values, the manuscript might still be approved for publication on its other merits. But at that point, they really want the p-values to be removed before publication. This is such a radical decision that if you Google the terms p-value bans, you'll still find modern, modern commentaries, say, in 2017 and 2018, where people talk about this very decision. And you'll also find a number of other results that show other journals that have the same policy, some that have made the call at an earlier time, um, some a little later. So, for example, the Epidemiology Journal banned p-values in 1990, and a journal called Political Analysis banned it in 2018. And then there are good reasons for this. Um, first of all, p-values aren't always thoroughly understood by those who use them in practice. So some people think of p-values as being the probability of the null hypothesis being correct, which just simply isn't true. Then there are also, um, there's also the fact that making decisions based on a p-value means you're sensitive to where the p-value lands with respect to a significance level. So if you use a significance level of 0.05, then getting a p-value of 0.049 might mean that you get a reportable or publishable result, whereas a p-value of 0.051, which isn't substantially different, would imply that you don't get to report anything interesting. So you can imagine the opportunity for abuse here. In theory, you're meant to set your significance level before seeing the data, but in practice, maybe you see that 0.051 and you say, well let's just use a significance level of 0.1, right? There we go. We get to report a statistically significant finding. And, um, you know, there's also some articles that will describe results as being marginally significant or nearly significant. Uh, these are just different ways or tactics to salvage some of those borderline cases. And the problem is that these terms just don't have any meaning. Yeah, another problem is that journals that that heavily rely on p-values to determine whether a result is significant enough to publish might incentivize researchers to engage in something called p-hacking. So imagine you have this rather large data set that might be an observational study of health outcomes and habits of a number of subjects. You could ask questions like, does blood pressure correlate with eating chocolate or does cholesterol correlate with eating chocolate, et cetera? The more questions you ask, the more risk you have of discovering something statistically significant that's, um, that's purely by chance. Then you might um, just write an article about the statistical significant, um, statistically significant result as though that's the only question you sought to answer to begin with. This is so much easier in today's day and age where that whole setup is easily done with a for loop, right? Just loop over all possible covariates and all the possible outcomes, try every possible hypothesis test you can think of, record the p-values, and then look at which ones turn up to be significant. This is why so many scientific discoveries wind up being unreproducible, and we talked about that back in episode eight. Yeah, in, um, in response to the very high profile ban in 2015, the American Statistical Association in 2016 organized a working committee to formalize a statement on just how we can interpret p-values. So we'll link to that in our show notes. And what I love about the statement is that it makes these six straightforward statements about what we can and what we can't conclude based on p-values. So this is not like a 200-page legal document. This is actually a very short document with six bullet points there. And uh, these aren't 
sort of really deep statements either. I actually went through the six bullet points with my intro stat students to show them that they are already on top of it. And they're, they're just like purely def definition, right? They're not, they're not so convoluted that you need to have a master's degree to understand. And it's almost as if the American Medical Association had to do a press release to say, hello world, a scalpel is used for making incisions for purposes of surgery. It's not used to cut up your steak. If you see a scalpel, you shouldn't immediately think a murder has been committed. That's the level of complexity of the statements here. <laughs> yeah, but the negativity rages on. So in late March, again, some news outlets were flooded by the new headline saying that 800 or so scientists petitioned to now ban the term statistical significance. And the central thesis of their argument is that the world is complicated. And when we rely on statistical significance, researchers are encouraged to bucket their findings into black and white categories of statistically significant versus not statistically significant. And then consumers of those research articles immediately translate those into meaning the drug's effective versus the drug is ineffective. There's always a bone to pick, right? This really loops back into bullet point number five in the ASA statement on p-values, which reads, a p-value or statistical significance does not measure the size of an effect or the importance of a result. And for those who understand how hypothesis testing works, when you have a large enough data set, any hypothesis test can wind up being statistically significant. That's just because the variability of your test statistic decreases as you get more data. So it might be tempting to say, hey, if we don't have a statistically significant result with 30 people in our study, let's just crank that up to 200 or 2,000. Yeah, but statistical significance can mean that your drug is only improving symptoms by one one-thousandth or one ten-thousandth of a percent relative to the sugar pill. So that's not practically helpful. For that reason, confidence intervals, which do report the effect size, giving a range of the difference in the mean outcomes that make sense given the data, have been embraced more and more as p-values fall from grace. In the Nature article that discusses this recent outrage against statistical significance, the authors cite a particular scenario that is interesting to talk about. The hypotheses being tested here involve looking at side effects of anti-inflammatory drugs. The null hypothesis here is that the risk of atrial fibrillation does not differ between those who use the drugs versus those who don't. Now, with their data, they found a p-value of 0.09, so that's not statistically significant, although they had a 95% confidence interval for the difference in risk that ranged from negative 3% upwards to 48%. So that's to say that a significant chunk of that confidence interval landed in the region that would suggest the drugs actually do result in higher AFib rates. So that's potential for side effect, right? And an earlier research study found um, a confidence interval that was similarly centered in the same sort of uh, same area in the positive risk region. This confidence interval had a narrower margin of error. And so that did actually equate to a statistically significant p-value of 0 0.0003. Um, so it's not like these two research studies contradicted each other. Quite possibly, the statistically significant result just used a larger sample size. Yeah, I mean, an understanding of how sample size affects statistical significance and the width of confidence intervals is important here. So what can we learn from this small example? I guess I would say that if the stakes are high enough where we really do care about getting the effect size right, which I think is a lot of the time, we probably want to focus on what the acceptable margin of error is and ensure that we have enough data to get within that margin of error. 
Exactly. So instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, try to understand what's going on. Thanks for listening to Data Bytes. If you have any questions or suggestions or comments for us, please email us at databytes.podcast at gmail.com. That's databytes with a Y. And if you want to see the numerous articles that served as reference material for today's show, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io. Till next time.